Today we're going to begin a brief uh, look, uh, three weeks long, at what the Bible teaches about gender and sexuality. And uh, as we begin, I want to tell you what I hope to accomplish during this time. I'll describe it this way. Uh, The Bible tells us about a conversation that Jesus had one day with a woman outside the town of Sychar. It was an unusual conversation. It was unusual for a couple of different reasons. On the one hand, it was a conversation between a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. And in this culture, the Jews and the Samaritans did not have much to do with each other. And men and women did not have public conversations like that. That was unusual. It was also unusual because the conversation took place uh, uh, in the middle of the day at a well. That's not usually the time that women who traditionally gather the water from the wells, not traditionally the time that they would go. It usually would go early in the morning before it was too hot outside, and you'd go with all your friends. Um, Early talk around the water cooler, if you will. Uh, Why? That raises questions. Commentators sometimes wonder, why is this woman alone at the well at noon. That seems strange. Does it say anything about the relationships she has with the other women in town? Uh, They talked about water. They talked about spiritual issues. They talked about theological issues. And Jesus said, go get your husband. And she said, oh, I don't have a husband. Um, And he said, she must have been shocked, shocked when he said this. He said to her, Uh, Actually, you're right. You have no husband right now, but you've had five husbands, and the man you are with right now is not your husband. Now, what does that observation of our Lord tell you about this woman? Some people might be inclined, the Bible doesn't give us any details like this, but some people might be inclined to blame her. What's wrong with this woman? She can't keep a marriage together. But I want you to think with me for just a minute about all the pain and the rejection and the fear and the shame that this woman is bearing. No little girl, no little girl when she is dreaming about her future and the life that she has dreams about getting married and divorced five times. Or or you might think about the vulnerability in this culture of an unattached woman. If you have no husband, if you have no son, if you have no brother, if you have no uncle, if you have no father to help take care of you, you are destined for deep and terrible poverty. You have to be married. You have to find some sort of support. Were marriages three, four, and five because she was starving? Even, even if it is all her fault and she's some sort of horrible person, there apparently is no man in Sychar that she's met who is willing to stick with her through all her troubles. Nobody who's, who's willing to come and say, I will be with you. I'll take care of you. No matter what happens, I'll be with you forever. Think again about what this means. All that pain, all that rejection, all that fear. Would you ever, if you were in this situation, risk giving your heart to someone else again? And to her, Jesus speaks about living water. It's to her that he says these familiar lines from John 4. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
I take up this, this task of speaking about what the Bible says about gender and sexuality with a little bit of trepidation, if you can understand. But my chief hope is that our congregation would be a place of refuge for broken and hurting and rejected and angry people. The church of Jesus Christ is the perfect place for sexually broken, struggling, confused, hurting people to go. I want to be the sort of pastor, I'm not sure I always have been, but I want to be the sort of pastor that leads a congregation where people know that church is a safe place to go. I want your home in your neighborhood to, be, to stand out on your street. That's a place that's a place where your kids can bring their friends and they know that place is safe and kind and they'll tell you, they'll give you straight answers sometimes even if you don't want to hear it. It's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult to both speak the truth and celebrate the grace of God and get them both right. And the challenge is that even when we do it right, we're going to be criticized. Um, you should understand, this is an important apologetic issue uh, in our culture. I've had conversations with people who are uh, part of a congregation, not necessarily ours, but part of a church, and, and they're thinking about their own faith. Am I real, do I really believe what the Bible says? And one of the questions they ask is, why does God seem to hate gay people so much? Why, why are you so angry at transgender people? Why... why are Christians so mean about these things? It's an apologetic issue. If, if Christianity is true, you, you would think that God's people would, would not be so mean. Oh, dear friends, if your son or your daughter one day confesses to you that they are uh, homosexual or uh, your son says to you he's a transgender woman, the temptation in your life, to jettison your biblical convictions will be strong, very strong. Am I going to stick with what I think the Bible says? Uh, even if it costs me my relationship with this child that I love so dearly? The temptation for you to walk away from biblical conviction will be very strong. Maybe this will be an opportunity for you, as we think about these issues, to consider how you talk about gender and sexuality. Three weeks ago, I sat down uh, one evening after dinner with my children, and I said, hey, I'm going to do this sermon series about uh, what the Bible says about gender and sexuality. What do you think I should do? Anything I, I should avoid, or what, what do you think? And I got a lot of, don't do this. And don't say that, and a lot of, a lot of warnings. And not, not necessarily about the content of what I was going to say. My children, knowing me well, were afraid that I would be snide or dismissive or mocking. <laughs> One of them, the final piece of advice was, here, I just, frankly, you just shouldn't do it at all. Don't do it at all. It was a real confidence booster. Thank you, Claire. And then another piece of advice I got was, um, I think about my, one of my classmates that you know who's transgender, and I want you to think, imagine that they're sitting in the chairs in church when you're speaking about this, and then talk. And actually, uh, you, you don't have to imagine it because there are already people in churches, our churches, churches just like ours, 
people already struggling with a great history of sexual brokenness and sexual confusion and sexual struggles. Let's speak the truth and let's celebrate the grace of God. Here's my plan. Here's what I want to do. This morning, we're going to talk about God's good design, what God had in mind when he made us. We're going to spend some time in Genesis to do that. Next week, we're going to talk about what went wrong what went wrong as we have human beings have lived out God's good design. And then on June 5th, Lord willing, we're going to talk about some of the practical issues and practical challenges that come up in our world when it comes to speaking the truth and celebrating the grace of God. What do you do about pronouns? What do you do about your coworkers' new names? How do you handle that? We're going to talk about some of those issues on the first Sunday in June, Lord willing. Today, again, though, we're going to talk about God's good design. Um, We could sometimes, my fear is that sometimes when we are arguing or making our position statements or counseling people, that sometimes when we say no, 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 so many times, we can lose the vision for what God has designed, his very good vision for what he has designed designed. We don't need to apologize for what the Bible says and what God has done. This is not like the tax code. It's not an onerous burden on people. What God has said and what he has made is good. God made men and made women. He made boys and girls, and it's good. It leads to flourishing and happiness. This is a blueprint that's worth embracing. I hope you say, by the time we're finished, I hope you say, to yourself, it's good to be a man, or it's good to be a woman, it's good to be a boy, it's good to be a girl. It's good, it's true, it's beautiful. So we want to celebrate today God's good design. Let's start by thinking about uh, understanding God's good design, and I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn them, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. So you'll find on like the first page of your Bible after the table of contents and the preface and all that stuff, but the very first book, uh, very first chapter, the very first book of the Bible, understanding God's good design, we're going to read from Genesis 1, verse 26. That's one of the places where I want to start. Here is day six of creation, and look what the scriptures say. Then God said, verse 26 of Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now skip down to verse 31. Here's God's evaluation at the end of six days of creation. God saw, verse 31, all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, in chapter 2, we go back and we get some special uh, uh, details about God's work on day 6. We we go back and review day 6, and and God gives us, uh, Moses here writes more specifics about what happened on day 6. For example, verse 7, we get how, how did God create man? Verse 7 of chapter 2 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. 
The word man means uh, from the earth or, or dirt. Um, I had a friend who was in the process of writing a book about creation, and he called the first man, he gave him the name Dusty. <laughs> pretty good. It's pretty good. So that's where uh, um, the man comes from. And then in verses 18 uh, and following, we get uh, God's creation of woman. And uh, verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, here we go. We have the first not good. Everything's been good up to this point in time. And at the end of day six, God's going to say very good. But before the day is out, he says, not good. It's not good that the man's alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And here's how he shows Adam his need. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Oh. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Here's God's very good design. Uh, the man is enthusiastic about it, ecstatically happy about it, and both of them here are vulnerable and completely at ease. I'm going to share with you from this text three truths about God's good design. Three things we see here about God's good design. First, we see human beings are created. Human beings are created. Our creatureliness here speaks to who has the right and authority to determine who we are and how we should live. We're creatures. Who has the right and authority to tell us who we are and how to live? Uh, Andrew Walker, in his excellent book, God and the Transgender Debate, uh, says that every decision that a human being makes has to ask and answer three questions. First, who has the authority to tell me what to do? Who has the authority to tell me what to do? Second, who has the knowledge to tell me what to do? Who has the, the knowledge? Um, I'm not going to take my lab work to a high school sophomore who has, works at Subway on the weekend and ask them if my health is good. Someday they may be a doctor, but they're not right now. Who, who's got the knowledge to tell me what to do? Who has the authority to tell me what to do? Who has the knowledge to tell me what to do? Who has the trustworthiness to tell me what to do? Who's trustworthy? When I make a decision, I need to know who has the authority, who has the knowledge, who's trustworthy, who's, who will look out for my good. And for us followers of Jesus here, we are creatures, the Bible tells us, and our answer to those questions is God. God has the authority and the knowledge and is trustworthy to tell us who we are and how to live. You should recognize that this is a radically countercultural idea. In 1992, in his Supreme Court decision, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, uh, you maybe hear that court case a lot because it's one of the court cases that uh, emphasized uh, 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 abortion rights. 
uh, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote this. Look what he says about human liberty. He says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Liberty means you get to choose all of those things. You get to determine them for yourself. Now from the Supreme Court to uh, Taylor Swift. (laughs) Taylor Swift, the singer-songwriter this weekend, uh, this past week, was given an honorary doctorate by New York University. She was given a doctorate in fine arts, and she gave a speech, and look what she said to the students. I know it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and when, who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. Then she says this, I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I, have some, I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. Hmm. Now, we're going to talk about more about uh, self-creation next week, but that independence is a fallacy. We're creatures. And it's a fallacy that you don't even need necessarily to be a follower of Jesus or even believe in God to, to recognize that it's a fallacy. Kelly Capick teaches uh, theology at Covenant College, and he tells his freshmen when they come to his classes, uh, he tells them right before they go home for Thanksgiving break, uh, he, he gives them a piece of advice. Something, something can happen sometimes to college freshmen. They go to college, and they discover a whole world of brilliance, and then they come home and realize their parents are not as brilliant as they thought they were. Then when they graduate, they figure out that their parents were a lot smarter than they thought. But anyway, uh, uh, he says, Kelly K. Big says to his college students, when you go home and your parents say something that you think sounds less enlightened than you are now, you college freshmen, he said you should look down, preferably you, uh, go in, take a shower and look down and you will find in the middle of your belly this thing called a belly button. And it is proof on your own body that you did not arise of your own cognition of your own self. You are not a self-created creature, a being, without any ties to anybody else. You have a mark on your body that you came from somewhere. And were once very significantly dependent on someone. This independence is a, is a fallacy. Now, our creation, it's important to note here that uh, the Bible says that God made us in his image and his likeness, males and females, both in his image and his likeness. That is, when God made the world, he put in it a creature that is like him. It's uh, these creatures here are signs and symbols of God's own authority. Several years ago, Kathy and I attended an Anglican wedding in Canada. And at the back of this Anglican church, there was a Canadian flag, and next to the Canadian flag, a picture of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Why is there a picture of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II in the back of an Anglican church? Because Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II is the head of the church, uh, head of the church in the Anglican system. And there's a picture there that is a symbol, a sign of her authority. If you walk into an Anglican church anywhere in the world, you can say, who's in charge of this church? And hopefully, they'll say Jesus. Then, next question, yeah, yeah, but who, who on earth is in charge of this, this church? And they should, well, should. In the Anglican communion, they would point to the picture and say, she is. 
She's in London right now, but there's her picture, and it's a sign and symbol of the fact that she's in charge. She's the head of the church. Walk into creation, and you say, who's in charge here? God's in charge. Well, I mean, but, but like right, right here, right now. Well, there's, there's, there's these creatures over there that are just like him. That, that they're, they're like him in so many ways that by watching them, you learn a lot about who God is because he, they're made in his image and in his likeness. And notice God made two different types of image bearers. He made male image bearers and he made female image bearers. This is the only divinely sanctioned distinction between human beings in creation. There's males, there's females. Notice he did not divide human beings here by height. People over six feet, people under six feet. There's a distinction. He didn't do it. Uh, There's no distinction here uh, based on ethnicity or race. No distinction here based on intelligence. There's males and females. And both male and female represent God's authority on earth. So human beings are created. So we start there. Secondly, human beings are commissioned. Human beings are commissioned. What are they commissioned to do? Chapter 1, verse 28, we read. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. What's the commission? Fill the earth, cultivate the earth. Fill the earth, cultivate the earth. And all of us, in some way, are engaged in this process. In, this, in some way, we're all engaged in this. If you're a farmer, your connection to this uh, commission here is, is probably the easiest to see. I know some farmers that have a lot of children. They've done their duty in filling the earth. And uh, what do they do? They take ground and they cultivate it. They, they care for it and bring from it uh, food that animals and, and human beings can eat. All of us, in some way, are engaged in this process of filling the earth and cultivating the earth. If you're a teacher, you are taking uh, um, Neanderthals, barbarians, and you're making them cultivated people. It's your task. All of us involved in this in some way. And notice, to do this, To do this commission that God has given, it takes men and it takes women. Most obvious part of this commission that it takes men and women to do would be filling the earth, right? It takes men and it takes women to populate the earth. I don't know if you saw, but recently the Taliban in Afghanistan, the ruling government there in that country, recently mandated, well, a a while ago, they told the young ladies, the girls, that they could no longer go to school, and they recently issued an edict that, again, in Afghanistan, women must wear, uh, be covered completely, except for their eyes, when they leave their house, and actually, the Taliban would just prefer if the women would not leave their houses at all. And I, I heard that news story, and I thought to myself, that it's, that's so foolish. Not only is it cruel, it's cruel, but it's foolish because you are eliminating from society half of the people that God has given to cultivate the earth. It's, it's cruel and it's foolish. Why would, you, why would you tell half of the image bearers 
that their presence in society, their presence in culture, their presence in education is unnecessary and unwanted. How foolish. Men and women, partners together in this work that God has uh, given us. Human beings are commissioned. Third, human beings are complementary. Complementary. Notice there's an E in there and not an I. It's not like we go around and say, wow, don't you look nice? Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's not it. No, complementary. We complement one another. Um, Human beings are, uh, men and women, equal but not interchangeable. Equal but not the same. There's not arbitrary differences between us as men and women. Uh, I have an embarrassing confession to make to you. I have, I have an inordinate number of shoes. I own an inordinate number of shoes. And what's even worse about my inordinate number of shoes is that a number of them are made by a company called Crocs. Do you remember Crocs? Yeah, some of you groaned. That's the Holy Spirit. Some of you groaned about that. Uh, you know, Crocs, still perfect ch- ch- uh, summer shoes for children, right? They're rubbery. They've got holes. They're easy to clean, and they're pretty durable. So put your kids on them. And I own them too. And um, I, have, I have a pair of Crocs that I only wear inside the house. Uh, they're slippers. My grandmother would say house shoes. Uh, I wear them around the house. I don't wear them outside the house because I don't want to track mud in my house, but you will always find my Crocs either near the door or on my feet. I wear them all the time. They're my inside Crocs. Well, I have a pair of outside Crocs too. They're really convenient. You can slip them on, take out the garbage, go check the mail, run to sheets, much to the chagrin of your children. It's wonderful. Uh, uh, I wear them outside, but I don't wear my outside cracks inside, and I don't wear my inside cracks outside. And you know the difference between my inside and outside cracks? There's absolutely no difference at all. They're completely interchangeable. I arbitrarily decided, thou shalt not go outside, thou shalt not go inside. I just declared the differences. They're identical other than my declaration. Well, that is not true of men and women. Men and women are not interchangeable. There's a host of differences. Uh, Most obviously, there's the difference in our bodies. It's important to point this out because we have the technology these days to make it seem like bodies don't matter. If 100 years ago, a man went to his doctor and said, Doctor, um, I really feel, I feel and I, I'm pretty sure I think like, and I want to act like, and I'm attracted to uh, things of uh, womanhood. I, I feel, I want to, I need to identify as a woman. And the doctor would say, but you're a man, I can tell by looking at your body. I know, but this is how I feel. And a hundred years ago, your doctor would say, let us then work on bringing your feelings, your identity into conformity with your body. Now, you go to your doctor and you, you speak about your identity. Then, now the task becomes to, bring, to, to take your body and bring it into conformity with your identity. And we have the medical technology now to do that, uh, to make it appear that way. We have <clears throat> puberty blockers. We have surgery. We have hormone treatments that make it seem like the body is irrelevant. But, but that's an illusion, 
Um, Albert Moeller says that the body always wins. Body always wins. If in 5,000 years, uh, long after you have died and decomposed, they dig up your body for archaeological research, they will be able to look at your body, your bones, and they will, be, they will say, was it a man or is it a woman? Was it male or was this person male or female? And they will be able to identify because biology wins. Even though with modern technology, we can give the illusion that the body doesn't matter, it, it does. Men and women are not interchangeable. There's other differences. Uh, um, there's sociological differences such that, that um, uh, hundreds of studies have been done. We won't, I won't speak to, seek to uh, describe or defend those today. But, but even there's differences even in Genesis 1 and 2 beyond our bodies. Look at these things. Adam was made first and Eve was made second. That's a difference. And uh, don't get excited about that, guys. Salamanders were made before you too. So don't get excited about that. But Paul does make that point. Paul makes the point that it seems to matter. Adam was made first and then Eve. He makes that distinction. Adam was made from dust. Eve was made from Adam's rib. Adam, according to Genesis 2, received the commission. Uh, Eve, the woman, was made as a vital, necessary helper. Men and women are not interchangeable. And God says when he made them, he says, this is very good. Manhood and womanhood is worth pursuing, are worth pursuing. They're worth correcting to achieve. Even, Even if the distinctions between manhood and womanhood have been painful for you and struggles for you, It is worth fighting for. This is a blueprint worth building your life around. It's very good. Phil Yancey writes about a time that he was, uh, he lives in the Midwest, or actually in Colorado, I think. And he went to a high school concert one night and the concert, uh, the orchestra at the high school concert played selections from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. That's a very difficult piece of music. How well do you think those 15, 16, and 17-year-old musicians did playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony? You know you have a device in your pocket. Most of you have a device in your pocket or your purse that you could pull it out and with a few uh, pushes on the screen. You, you could hear the New York Philharmonic play Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and it would be uh, beautiful and wonderful. Certainly better from an objective standpoint than the orchestra of uh, Podunkville, Colorado, playing uh, 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 this song. So why, why did those high school musicians even try? Well, Phil Yancey says, <laughs> you could pull out your phone and listen to the New York Philharmonic, play Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, he says, but when's the last time you actually did? For some of those grandparents there, listening to their grandchildren, some of those parents listening to their children play Beethoven's Ninth. It's the only version of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony they're going to hear in a decade. And the music is so beautiful that it's worth aspiring to play even if at times you're out of tune and even if at times you're out of sync because it's such wonderful music. It's worth trying. And God's very good design for us as human beings is worth pursuing, even if sometimes we're out of tune and out of sync. 
That's understanding God's good design. Now, I want to speak for just a few minutes about pursuing God's good design, pursuing God's good design. This is God's good design, but we still have questions about this. So what does it mean? Can you flesh this out for me, manhood and womanhood? There's bodily differences. That's true. Is there more? And the frustrating thing about this is that there is no passage in the Bible, no paragraph that I can take you to where one of the apostles or one of the prophets or Jesus himself says, here's the list of all the things it means to be a man. Here's a list of all the things it means to be a woman. It's frustrating that there's not a passage of scripture like that. And one of the frustrations is that then we tend to rely on stereotypes. Every culture has them, and they're not always helpful. Right? In, all, in our culture, uh, masculinity means um, you love sports and hunting and fixing cars. And femininity means you like baking and sewing and decorating. Right? Those are stereotypes. And if you're not like the stereotypes, or if you like something that someone else uh, that is stereotypical of the other uh, sex, if, if you like that, then, then, well, you might be gay, you might be lesbian, and if you're a little child, and you're a girl, and you like to play with trucks, or if you're a little boy, and you like to play house, that probably means you're transgender, and we need to do something about that. Relying on stereotypes is not helpful. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. There are bodily differences between men and women. Every culture has some different expressions of manhood and womanhood. If, for example, if we were in Scotland and a man walked in wearing what we would say is a skirt, it would not be a skirt. It would be a kilt and it would be completely acceptable for him to wear. Cultural differences. And uh, uh, there's, there's studies, sociological studies, but there's no specific biblical list. And that's a little frustrating. Maybe, maybe the reason that there's no list like that is because the Bible is written for people who would be of vast different cultures. And uh, maybe it's, it's because we are essentially and first and foremost image bearers together. Uh, what we have in common as image bearers is much more predominant than what distinguishes us. Some followers of Jesus like to talk about roles and emphasis on roles that the Bible prescribes for uh, families and churches. And I think that's helpful. Whatever temperament you have, whatever skills you have, whatever interests you have, use them to fulfill the roles that God has called men and women to fulfill. Not a bad way to live. In his book, uh, Men and Women in the Church, Kevin DeYoung uh, uh, says that, that the Bible gives us patterns, principles, and prescriptions. And he says that when his children ask him, he's got nine of them, when his children ask them, what does it mean to be a boy? Or what does it mean to be a girl? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? He gives them, he says, based on those patterns, principles, and prescriptions, he gives them the ABCs. Actually, he gives them the ABCs, Ds, and Es. Here they are, five things. Uh, manhood, womanhood, move toward uh, in distinct ways. They're, here they are in alphabetical order, but not necessarily in order of importance. We'll start with A, appearance. Appearance. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven six, and I want you to think about Paul's logic here in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians eleven six says, For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. And then verse 13 
Judge for yourselves, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. Now, two things to note about this passage. Paul is thinking about two different things at once. He's thinking about the nature, the different nature of men and women, and he's thinking about specific cultural expressions of manhood and womanhood. And in Corinth, head covering for women was very important. It was a very specific cultural expression of womanhood. Not every culture shares this, but in Corinth, covering your head was an important symbol of womanhood. And uh, long hair was an important symbol of womanhood that was not culturally acceptable for men in this culture. He's putting together our nature as man and woman and these cultural expressions. It is good, it is good to pursue biblical manhood and womanhood in embracing the cultural expressions of distinction. We'll talk about the limits of that in a few minutes, but, but uh, that, that's a good place to start here. It's not a credit, it is not a credit to our culture that the gender neutral section of the stores is growing and growing and growing. It's not a, it's not a credit to us. He used to. I know I'm old, but you used to be able to walk into Gap. I don't shop at Gap very much, but you used to be able to walk into Gap and you'd walk into the store and there was the men's section on one side and the women's section on the other. And it used to be easier to tell which was which. It's not as easy as it used to be. It's not a credit to our culture. Appearance. Be body. Body. Where do you talk about bodies? Uh, Bodies matter. Male and female bodies are made for each other. Male bodies and female bodies can become one flesh and produce children. When male bodies and female bodies, uh, uh, when male bodies interact sexually with other male bodies, they do not produce children. There's a lawsuit that's going on right now. A man is suing the state of New York. He's an employee of the state and the health insurance that they provide um, uh, as employees of New York State covers infertility. But this man is suing the state of New York because it won't cover, uh, he and his husband want to have a baby and the infertility coverage doesn't cover them. But the thing about it is that they're not really suffering from infertility, they're they're facing these biological realities that male bodies don't produce children together. Bodies matter. On a side note, slightly related to this, in 2015, what really started the transgender conversation in our culture in a significant way was in 2015, the Vanity Fair cover when Bruce Jenner introduced himself to the world as Caitlyn Jenner. What's notable about that picture is not just that he... Uh, in the picture, Jenner is, uh, personifies um, uh, all the se- female sexuality that he, that he can. What's notable about that is that Jenner's hands are not visible in that picture. Do you know why? Because Jenner has big Olympic gold medal winning athlete hands. And those big hands did not match the image that Jenner was trying to portray on that cover bodies, there's a difference and it matters. C stands for character. C stands for character. Most of the time, 
The Bible speaks to us as followers of Jesus about our common pursuits. We are all to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We're all to grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. That's to mark all men and women who are followers of Jesus. But when, address, when the Bible does address men and women individually, it's, it does differ in what it commends to them. These are rare in the Bible, but it happens. Look at 1 Timothy 2, for example. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. Therefore, I want the men, and they're speaking about men, men. Therefore, I want the men everywhere, males, to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Hmm. Paul knows what he's about, talking to men about anger and fighting, right? Then he says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Notice the distinctions there. Paul is going after a men's tendency to live according to anger and in conflict, and he's going after a woman's tendency towards uh, external vanity. Kevin DeYoung here, based on these passages, says that we should talk in general about female beauty and male strength. Now be careful about how we use those those words because those are both physical words. But he says, strong men pursuing strength in all the ways that God wants men to be strong. Women pursuing beauty in all the ways that God wants women to pursue beauty. And what's the beauty here? In this passage, it's the beauty of good deeds. And what's the strength here? It's the strength of praying faith. Strong in all the ways that God wants men to be strong. Beautiful in all the ways that God wants women to be beautiful. Character. Closely related to that, D, demeanor. Demeanor. We're not going to take the time, but if you read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says to the people in uh, Thessalonica, he says, when I came to you, I was gentle and shared my whole life with you like a mother, and I encouraged, exhorted, and challenged you like a father. It's interesting. Paul did both of those things. He was gentle and exhortative, but he, he identified them with women and with men. There's a difference. Paul did both but he can associate them with manhood and womanhood. Just think about the differences between how fathers and mothers play with their children. Just think about those differences. Uh, Women rarely throw their children in the air. Men, if you're not throwing your children in the air, you're doing something wrong. Just vast differences between how mothers and fathers play with their children. D, that's D. Now, E, last, eager posture. Eager posture. Here he comes back to God's creation design in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam receives the commission in Genesis chapter 2. Eve is given to him as a suitable helper. And there's this eagerness, eagerness in manhood and womanhood to pursue these things. If you're a young woman who is hoping to marry someday, look for men who are pursuing God's purposes, someone with whom you can partner in this work of filling and cultivating the earth. Have that eager posture. Who is, who is after what God wants? I want to partner with them in pursuing that. 
If you are a young man who is uh, looking to get married someday, look for someone to partner with you in this. If you're looking for a church, look for a church that's filled with men who are after the commission that God has given us and look for women who are using all the skills and gifts they have to partner with them in pursuing God's purposes. Eager posture. Have you ever heard the expression, uh, in order to change the world, you shouldn't just curse the darkness, but you should light a candle? It's an old expression. Here's the light for us in Genesis 1 and 2. It's good. It's God's very good plan. Let's play the music that God has written for us to play. Next week, we're going to talk about how we got so out of tune. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your great kindness to us. We, are, uh, we acknowledge your good, good plans in the world that you have made. Uh, Father, we are thankful to you for manhood and womanhood, though we confess that we often feel challenged by these things. We succumb at times to stereotypes, and some of us have been hurt uh, grievously as, as we try to live these things out or struggle into what manhood and womanhood look like as we follow you. So help us. Help us, Lord, to embrace your very good plan and be gentle and gracious and courageous in encouraging one another to pursue your good plan boldly and happily. Help us, oh help us we pray in Christ's name, amen.